Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic. You can find them at streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that's become integral to my research process. I first discovered them about a year and a half ago, and since then they have built out an incredibly robust transcript library. Today, Stream by Mosaic provides over 300 expert interviews per week. 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream, and each interview goes through three layers of compliance screening. Recently, someone said, Stream is table stakes for good fundamental analysis. I couldn't agree more. Please see StreamRG.com where you can sign up for a 14-day trial, and please use the promo code BREW, B-R-E-W. It will help me get some attribution. This episode features Michael Green. Michael is a portfolio manager and chief strategist at Simplify Asset Management. You can find him on Real Vision, many, many discussions on YouTube. He interviews all kinds of really, really big names in finance, and Michael thinks thoughts that I couldn't even comprehend, but I tried to keep up in this conversation. Michael has been a student of markets and market structure for nearly 30 years. His proprietary research into the shift from actively managed portfolios and investment funds to systematic passive investment strategies has been presented to the Federal Reserve, the BIS, the IMF, and numerous other industry groups and associations. He has unique thoughts on market liquidity, inflation, and how COVID will ultimately impact economic growth. I hope you all enjoy the conversation. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. Thrilled to be joined by Michael Green today. Michael, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. And yourself, Bill? I am doing well. I'm excited to speak to you. I have watched you on Real Vision for a long time. Huge fan of the David Einhorn interview, liked your entire uh, Simplify Asset Management conference that you put on recently. So thank you for all the content that I consume. No, it was absolutely a pleasure. And, and the exciting part is, is that that conference was a tremendous success. We ended up raising slightly more than $40,000 for Coney Island Prep, which is a charity that both Josh Wolf and I are very close with. Um, and we're really excited to do it again this year. And so we're going to be hosting it hopefully in person at the New York Stock Exchange this time. And um, we'll be able to have people attend and and uh, not only donate to watch online, which we hope to do all over again, because that was really quite successful, but to have people come in person and attend dinners afterwards. It's The slowly reopening part is kind of exciting. Yeah, that's cool, man. How has it been to uh, to launch Simplify? Uh, it's been an incredible experience. I mean, so we launched in September of 2020. Um, we're now slightly over a billion, about a billion two in assets under management. Um, we've got about 12 ETFs that are active with a host of new products coming out. In fact, tomorrow is, uh, the, the end of the quiet period on a couple of them. So I can't entirely talk about them, but the, the exciting part is to start bringing the innovations that we've had. We've introduced on hedging in the equity space to do similar stuff in credit, et cetera. So we're, we're, we're working hard to bring novel exposures to the marketplace. That's cool. You know, something that I, th- I think you're known for, for people that, that don't know, maybe we can give them a little bit of background, but is uh, 
the idea of the inelastic uh, market hypothesis. I was curious to hear you articulate it for people that may not know, and then also how it informed uh, you know, what you're building at Simplify. Sure. So the traditional way of thinking about markets is through the efficient market hypothesis, the idea that effectively markets reflect all of the available information. And in general, that idea is predicated on a simplifying assumption about market behavior, which is that any new entrant into the market or anyone trying to put money to work in the market has a very limited impact on the price behavior of the securities in the market. And you can understand how that works, right, for the very simple observation that every buyer has to be matched with the seller, right? So if I put money in, by definition, you're taking money out. The problem with that is, is it fails to consider, you know, effectively the intensity of that action. And so if I go into the market with the intent to buy and there isn't somebody who has an active intent to sell, effectively, they have to be induced to sell. The only way that that can play out is through an increase in the price of the security. And so challenging that theoretical construct of very little impact of any one individual player is kind of the first dynamic that I brought to it. And since I introduced kind of my thinking in 2016, 2017, and initially did this in the volatility space with the volatility ETFs, which had much greater penetration of systematic strategies than the market as a whole, you know, we started to see the academic support for this, including the name, the inelastic market hypothesis, has come out basically in 2020, and the academic literature is beginning to explode on this idea, right? That individual actors have an outsized impact in the market based on the rules by which they participate. And the paper in particular that I would refer people to is, is Gabay and Koijin, Xavier Gabay and Ralph Koijin. Gabay is at, Har at Harvard, and Koijin is at uh, the University of Chicago. And they've somewhat exhaustively documented the impact as being dramatically greater than you would assume under, under the traditional view of the efficient market hypothesis. So the efficient market hypothesis would assume that me putting money to work in the market, you know, a, an, a dollar that I add to the market has significantly less than a $1 increase in market cap, for example, right? That's the underlying thesis in the efficient market hypothesis. Gabay and Koijin's work would suggest that that multiplier is about five. So each dollar that goes in creates about $5 worth of market cap. My work, which is further supported by some academic work from Valentin Haddad at UCLA, suggests that you need to further bifurcate or segment the market into active management versus passive management. And okay. the critical difference between an active manager and a passive manager is, is that the active manager has cash as their base asset. So if I give an active manager cash, they have discretion as to whether or not they want to put that money to work. But if I give that money to a passive manager, they are functionally, and Valentin's direct you know, language for this, is they are perfectly inelastic. Yeah, they, they just have buy. to put that money to work in the market, right? And so the algorithm for a passive vehicle is literally as simple as, did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. At what price? Whatever price the market will give me. Right? Hmm. And so that's yeah. having a huge impact on the markets. You know, I, the, the thing that like rings out in my head, and I don't know, I've worried about this for a while, and I don't know if we're seeing some of it now. I, I, I don't know where it's going to go. But 
there's so much anger for lack of a better term at the system right yeah. and and the haves and the have nots and one of the things that's kind of bothered me about uh the passive movement is you give it to you know you give your money to vanguard vanguard just buys regardless of price who does the voting right you don't ever you're not voting on ceo comp that's outsourced to vanguard's people those people are almost always voting yes it's like there's there's no oversight well i shouldn't say that that's hyperbolic but it seems like there's less oversight than active usually would have had and if it all goes bad is this going to be like one more hey the system's out to get everyone rather than we all abdicated all our responsibility and just kept buying regardless of price like there's no other thing in my life that i think that i would just say yeah i don't care about the price just buy yeah. right but but it's such a large component of the equity market it i don't know it, it confounds me it's so the concern that you're articulating is one that I think has been reasonably well accepted as an issue. And it's part of the reason why I would suggest that you're seeing Larry Fink at BlackRock increasingly talk about dynamics like ESG, right? They're trying to get in front of this idea that passive management effectively is an abdication of the governance function. I'm actually much less concerned about that because the simple reality is, is that most active managers really don't take a particularly active interest in proxy voting, et cetera. Okay. And so, you know, we, we've had this issue, this agency issue is what it's referred to between the owners of publicly traded stocks and the management teams for years and years and years, right? Literally decades. Neil Minow of, of uh, uh, I believe it's the Shareholder Institute, but, you know, she has been one of the leading advocates of improved governance, et cetera. And I'm not convinced that that is actually the single biggest issue. I think the much bigger issue is this this dynamic of at what price do you allocate capital? Yeah. Right. And the if your presumption is that you are going along with the crowd and you yourself have no underlying impact on the market behavior, then it can lead to very different conclusions about your influence on the market than if you actually do have an impact on it, right? And the entire regulatory apparatus that has emerged, the entire narrative that has emerged around the passive space is that it is beyond harmless, it's actually helpful. And it is the best solution for the vast majority of the public investors who don't want to take a particularly active stock selection you know, bias within their portfolios. And it's just presumed, again, because of the dynamics of the efficient market hypothesis, that the underlying feature of the market is going to be that the active players continue to drive the bus and make the decisions when you have a quote unquote passive, right? It's the language is perfect. I'm a passive investor. I have no influence on the market. Well, that's just not true. Yeah. Right. You actually have a compounding and exponential influence on the market as you become larger and larger in mass. And in particular, when you start to introduce vehicles like target date funds, that systematically rebalance and systematically allocate simply based on your age or your expected retirement, you're increasingly creating conditions under which everybody ends up behaving in exactly the same way, right? And yeah, then, at the same time, right? At the same time. And it, it, it drives really perverse conclusions on the market that go beyond simply, does Microsoft or Apple get a continuous bid from Vanguard? 
It also influences things like the information source that flows to the market in the form of borrowing costs, right? Because as Vanguard and BlackRock become larger and larger, the, a primary source of their revenues is the securities lending operation. When you're operating at the scale that they are, for example, it can give the perception that there's an unlimited number of shares that are available. Hmm. And the sophistication with which they approach this, I would argue Vanguard is worse than BlackRock, but the sophistication with which they approach those, those issues is much lower than the Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo, et cetera, the world that used to dominate these types of markets. And it creates conditions similar to what we saw with GameStop or what we saw with AMC, where once you've exhausted the short supply, the securities lending that's coming from a player like Vanguard or BlackRock, prices can change radically, right? And suddenly huh. there's an exponential feature, a truly convex financing relationship emerges in the market that causes the types of dynamics that we've seen. Why, in what way are they less sophisticated? I, I'm just not familiar with the dynamics of how they do, you know, how Goldman and Wells used to run their lending sure. operation versus, you know, what Vanguard's doing. So the scale of the operation is dramatically different among other things, right? So if you're Goldman Sachs and you have, let's say, you know, 1% market share of the total asset base, you actually develop a skill in sourcing securities for lending operations, not just through your own activities, but also through other desks that you're in communication with around the street, right? Yeah. And so as a security starts to be borrowed, it becomes increasingly clear that it is becoming special in its characteristics. It's harder to find the marginal player to lend that to you, and the price of borrowing can begin to rise in a somewhat gradual fashion. But when you introduce a player like a Vanguard or BlackRock who has far fewer restrictions and has almost no incentive to go out and source because there isn't a broader client service relationship, particularly on the shorting side, right? Like there was with a Goldman Sachs or a Credit Suisse with the hedge fund environment, you actually create conditions in which they lend out the shares that they have available. But the minute those are lent out, then the system suddenly finds itself without additional sources of supply, certainly not additional sources of supply in the scale at which Vanguard or BlackRock make it available. And so prices can rise very, very quickly. Huh. So is it is what you're saying, if I'm understanding it correctly, is it almost as if they're they're at such scale that they're operating in silos and the cost to borrow almost doesn't really move until it doesn't like until it, it snaps, right? And then it goes straight up or whatever. That's exactly the right way to think about it. Huh. That's interesting. So what um, do you mind talking about, you know, if you take the um, the inelastic markets hypothesis, it's, it's logical conclusion. Uh, once people start withdrawing, what might that do to uh, volatility and sort of a follow up to that? If, if you can think about both at the same time, are we seeing some of that now? Because some names are just like the volatility within the index does not match what's going on on the yeah. surface. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly what's happening. And so just, you know, if you, if you think about the dynamic of, you know, a market should be thought of almost like a Moroccan soup, right? Where you go in and you decide, okay, I want to try and buy, you know, a tea set, or I want to buy a carpet, or I want to buy X, Y, and Z, right? If there's tons of individual vendors, each of whom have small supplies, it's relatively easy for you to negotiate against the vendors. Right. And to go into that market and say, how much are you charging for a rug and how much are you charging for a rug? And if you go to many 
uh, less developed regions around the world, you'll explicitly find that they set up markets like this, right? All the cell phones are sold in the same place. All the rugs are sold in the same place. Why? Because it actually facilitates that transaction activity of negotiation, right? I don't have to travel across the town to compare prices for cell phone plans or for rugs. I can do it right next to people and it creates a competitive environment, right? But if you think about that same dynamic and you go into Walmart, right? If I go into Walmart, and I'm not entirely sure what the right price is for a cell phone, unless I have access to my phone and I can check prices and do all that sort of stuff, it's certainly facilitated. But it creates conditions under which you can have things like lost leaders that draw people in for, for particular goods, and then you charge premiums for everything else, right? Hmm, yeah. We're increasingly becoming that type of market in the stock market where the vendors are becoming increasingly consolidated. The quantity of shares that are available from any one player are becoming less and less. And in the same way that you think about the impact that Walmart has had on the global purchasing and global sourcing environment, right, where they can make or break any one individual, they're having the same impact on the securities market, where inclusion in an index that Vanguard is buying can cause your stock to explode to the top side. And the much less common environment is that Vanguard starts to sell, right? And if that yeah. happens, we don't have a lot of examples of this, but I would highlight a few examples where we have seen this. For example, in August of 2015, Vanguard changed the structure of their target date funds reduced the allocation to US equities and increased allocation to international bonds. And that's what we think, that crash that was associated with that, we think that was a function of China devaluing their currency. And that's hmm. not what happened at all. Right, China hmm. devalued its currency five days before that crash. Right. Hmm. Either the news traveled on the slowest boat I've ever seen, you know, like <laughs> that just doesn't happen. Right. And yeah. so we, we construct a narrative that says, oh, of course, this is why it happens. But the reality is, is that that was a very specific event. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is you, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about like if you're a fish swimming in water. Right. And the, and the tide is rising. You know, we're all looking at securities. At some point, relative valuation, I think, matters a little bit unless you're just going to be the guy screaming at the sky saying, I need this. If Vanguard is pulling you know, prices up and everybody's looking around like, what else can we buy? You're, you're almost, um, in a way, forced if you want to take risk into to being undercompensated relative to maybe you would want to in a vacuum. Well, and you're, you're also, I would suggest, you know, if you're going to be a quote unquote value investor, you have one of two choices. You can either step out of that rising market and into cash that yields nothing. And under that scenario, if you happen to be right and you happen to get a market crash, well, then you'll attract assets and you may have an opportunity to promote your view for a while. And I would broadly argue that's exactly what happened to hedge funds from 2000 to give or take 2011 was they happened to be in the right place to capture the dynamics of the dot-com collapse that led to the perception that shorting was an incredibly important part of the market. And that completely destroyed everyone from basically the end of the global financial crisis through March 2020, right? Anyone hmm. who tried to short underperformed dramatically. The second thing that I would, would highlight about that dynamic is 
The other thing that it forces people to do is try to create relative value opportunities. And that almost inevitably takes you down the quality chain to an extraordinary degree. I mean, I, I was on a Twitter spaces yesterday where I'm listening to people talk about cheap fertilizer companies and cheap energy companies trading at 10 times EV to EBITDA. I mean, 10 mm. times the EV to EBITDA for a cyclical you know, commodity company I don't care what the overall quality of the assets or the market position is, et cetera. You can see my dog wandering around behind me. <laughs> the, you know, that is not cheap. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, especially when you're talking about cyclicals and commodities. And I mean, that, that EBITDA can move around on you real quick. Very quickly. Huh? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think I, I, I sometimes wonder if, um, if that's why we've seen the, I mean, look, I, I think fundamentally when you look at some of the big names in the indexes, it, it's impossible to argue that earnings growth and cash flow growth has not driven a lot of the results. But I do wonder if some of the valuation disparity inter in, in industry, like within industries, I, I just kind of wonder if um, some of the really ugly ones are the ones that are looking attractive because there are no great options uh, in people's minds, or maybe the quality appears to be undercompensated, but at the same time, like the, the cheap is cheap for a reason and just like completely, uh, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it no, seems I, I, to me. So I, I literally was just having exactly this conversation internally with individuals at Simplify. And there's, you know, this broad narrative that says, you know, Microsoft is ridiculously expensive or Apple is ridiculously expensive. And to be clear, I think they are ridiculously expensive. But if I'm comparing an Apple versus a unprofitable levered, you know, cyclical commodity shipping company that is currently benefiting from the fact that all of the supply in the world basically needed to squeeze through the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. Man, I just don't see it. Yeah, I just don't see it. And yeah. you know, what we've, pe people tend not to appreciate this, but like I, I pulled up Ford Motor Company the other day, which is one of the largest companies in the junk index. And yeah, it's had a success with the, with the recent Mustang and it's getting some progress in terms of electric vehicles. But the reality is, is that we're facing a once in a generation, you know, switch in the auto space and Ford is trading at the highest valuations that it's traded at since the global financial crisis. Hmm. Right on the back of massive shortages that have inflated prices that are beginning to break. Yeah. Right. It's not like household formation has exploded. It's not like demand for cars is off the charts. No, there's shortages of supply that are manifesting itself in short-term spikes in profitability. But we're nowhere near the sort of conditions that people would look at and say, oh man, I just can't wait for the auto industry to really take off. Yeah, well, it reminds me of your conversation with David Einhorn when you two were talking about the auto industry, and uh, I forget who made the comment, but it was just because uh, a profit pool is being disrupted does not mean that the disruptor captures the profit pool, right? The profit pool can disappear. That's the more common outcome, unfortunately, right? Yeah. I mean, the more common outcome is, is that you have the dynamics that you've had with an Amazon, for example, which has eviscerated the profitability of the retail sector even as it's effectively camouflaged its own profitability with the dynamics of AWS, right? So, I mean, are there really attractive aspects of Amazon? Absolutely. 
did the disruption lead to all the retailers being better than they've ever been before? And, and by the way, like I actually just pointed out on Twitter, the dynamics of Dillard's department stores, which is one of the names that, that David and I were talking about. You know, the fundamentals of Dillard's are not good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the fact that they're buying back their shares with the being facilitated by an employee stock repurchasing program, one of the few that remains where 37% of the stock is now owned by the employee stock ownership plan. And that just sounds like, you know, I, I want to be clear, I don't have any indication that there's malfeasance in the form of Conrad Black, but man, that is, when you have, you know, the, the internal management fee team and the founding family selling shares, you know, into an, an employee stock purchasing program, that's not a good look. Yeah, it can be tough, especially at high prices, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I thought... I, I thought some of the comments in the in your conversation with David were interesting, especially knowing your background as a value investor is how you came into the industry, right? Yeah. The it's it's amazing to uh, think about one the disincentive to invest in in a company when the shares are sort of forgotten by the index, right? Because the return on your buyback is so much higher than the return on invested capital that could be generated. And then, uh, and two, when he was talking about Dillard's, how he was just like, the stock just didn't go anywhere. And then mm -hmm. they just bought so much of it that there was no, there was none left. Right. And then it six X. It's just kind of interesting, these orphaned assets and how long they can remain or orphaned. You know, I, I think the comment that he said is, if you do good work, the world should work in the way that you earn a reasonable rate of return and then you get a re-rating at the end. But that has not been the case for the last five years. It's been just constantly looking at holdings saying like they're not going anywhere. Uh, I think I think you guys referred to it as nihilism. It, you know, do you, do you think that a lot of the indexation, is that driving a lot of this behavior that some value investors, I think, as a class are are noticing? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely think that's the case. I actually was just doing an analysis and, and, you know, just want to emphasize like the guys at Horizon Asset, you know, Murray Stahl and, and his crew are, are fantastic analysts and have caught uh, any number of market trends over the years. You know, I had, um, they have also been proponents of the idea that passive is distorting market construction. One of the names they're best known for is TPG, Texas, uh, Texas Land, right? I think that's what it's called. And yeah, it's uh, the know, land trust, looking, right? Texas that land that trust. buys yeah, back shares all the time. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that exploded in the post COVID environment. Yeah. And the irony is, is that the reason it exploded was because it was included, it was finally included in a Vanguard index. So oh, if you look at who I didn't the realize that. Was, it's Vanguard. Huh. Right. And, you know, on the flip side of that, that was the, the point that I was making with Dillard's is actually what you're now seeing is the price was spiked upwards, you know, by the dynamics of people, you know, the Vanguard's the center of the world not selling. But once you cross a certain point in terms of insider ownership and the ESOP crossed over that level alongside the other insiders, it's now being ejected from the indices, hmm. right? And so Vanguard is actually hmm. selling into an environment in which all the hedge funds have suddenly rushed in saying, oh, wow, look at the, the benefits of, of you know, effective capital management. 
I just think they're going to get trapped. Huh? At the same Who time that the to? employees are buying, that sucks or could suck. It, I, it, it's tough to imagine something worse than being a retail employee in a dying business where the primary asset in your retirement is the ownership of the corporation that employs you. Yeah, and your bid just went away. Right. And turned into a sell. Turned into a sell. Huh. I, you know, it's, it's wild to watch the C-Corp conversions because yep. you see that too. It's like the second that they can get index inclusion. I mean, the, the big asset managers are the prototypical example, but I've seen it now in a couple things. It's wild, man. It doesn't feel like it should be this way, but maybe, um, I mean, I think you would argue it hasn't been that way. As someone who's not a historian, sometimes I find myself saying maybe it's the same as it ever was, but feels no, different it, to me. it definitely isn't. And that's actually part of the reason why I highlight this so much, right? Is that we have never experienced anything like this. We've never experienced this degree of concentration of ownership in public equities. Everyone is used to the the nonsense line that you hear from you know the um, the Piketty type stuff, which is you know the top one percent owns ninety percent of the equity you know in the United States. That's just not true. The reason we're getting that data is because they're conflating public and private ownership. So the data is being drawn from the Fed's flow of funds and the balance accounts, and in there they're making an estimate of the value of privately held businesses. Well. You know, I think the technical term mm. is no shit, Sherlock. You know, business owners <laughs> own businesses, right? So, you know, the yeah. top 1%, by definition, if, if they have a ton of business equity, are going to own most of it, right? But the publicly held securities are increasingly diffused and spread out amongst the public ownership, whether that's Vanguard, which doesn't have anywhere near that type of concentration of ownership, public pension plans that are mimicking the behavior of Vanguard through cheap beta indexing, et cetera. We're basically engaged in a giant offload where the insiders are continually selling and issuing themselves you know, options that they're then using cash flow to repurchase and support the share prices. I guess this is a crazy system that is set up to create distress if it breaks. And my, yeah. my view is it's going to break. So, I, you know, I, I can hear people uh, in my head, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I can hear people say, see, this is all the Fed's fault, because if rates were higher, people wouldn't be so crowded into equities. I mean, is, you know, how do you, how do you view rate normalization and, and the Fed's role in all of whatever we see going on? Uh, is that too broad of a question? Um. So it could it's, be. it's a really broad question. And, Feel and free to redirect. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> and, but the reason why I, the reason why I'm pausing is because I'm not entirely sure I agree with the statement. Right. So, yeah, I'm so not sure I do either. Yeah. I, so, I'm. So I'm the, more asking. The fir the first point that I would make is absolutely people would be shouting, "Yeah, this is all the Fed's fault." Right. And the reality is, no, it's not all the Fed's fault. The Fed certainly plays a role. Right in enabling and facilitating this, but in large part, I would argue that they're forced to because the U.S. pension system is now intimately tied up with the S and P 500 or the Vanguard Total Market Index, and so when asset prices fall, the potential future future purchasing power for a sizable fraction of the U.S. population can get eviscerated, and that creates conditions of almost certain recession, which is against the Fed's mandate. Right, so. They're kind of forced into hmm. a reactionary mode against this. The second thing, though, that I would highlight is, is that I think people broadly misunderstand 
the role that the Fed plays in driving this behavior. So most people would argue that the dynamic is that the Fed lowers interest rates. That makes equities relatively more attractive than bonds, and therefore people go off and buy equities rather than bonds, right? Yeah. But that's actually not true. What we're seeing is, is that household ownership of bonds, institutional ownership of bonds, et cetera, is expanding apace. We're seeing increased levels of fixed income investment as America ages. And I would broadly argue that the dynamics of a financializing economy is actually a function of people wanting more debt as an asset, right? To hold debt as an asset that facilitates their retirement through fixed income payments than is actually warranted by the dynamics of the underlying economy. Can you repeat that once more? Just I just want to make yeah. sure that I understand what you're saying. So the process of financialization in an economy, I would broadly argue, is a function of there being more demand for debt than there is actual demand to issue debt. Huh. Right? So because there's more demand for the debt, it enables the people in Wall Street and the buyers of those, there can be more securitization than there maybe otherwise would be Correct. if there just wasn't as much, uh, I guess, we, demand we have for an, the paper. We have an aging population and slowing population growth. When you have an aging population and you have relatively low inflation, right? And by relatively low, I don't care whether it's 1% or 6%. Those are all relatively low levels of inflation, right? Six may not feel that low right now, but it's it, relative to many periods in history, it's actually quite low. So when we, when we think about what is actually going on, the older generation is very much saying, I need to own financial assets, make them available to me. And my strong preference is for fixed income assets because I yeah. don't want the volatility and risks associated with owning equities. Sure. Right? I want to I be able to plan my retirement. Right. And, and as somebody who's involved in financial planning, you fully understand the benefit of a fixed income security that has a defined maturity, et cetera. It helps you to ladder a series of, of cash flows that allows you to structure your retirement with a degree of certainty, right? Under those conditions, what we're seeing is corporations issue debt to retire equity, right? They have become the buyer from the baby boomers. Right. Vanguard happens to be participating as well. Private equity is doing the same thing. They're manufacturing debt that is being sold into fixed income indices. Right. And the bigger you are as an issuer, the better your chance of representation within the index. Right. You know, the, the crazy area of growth in, in passive is actually fixed income. Yeah. And then the, the crazy part of that dynamic, at least when, uh, you know, but for swoon in 07 to 10 or whatever, is all that demand reduces all the covenants. Like there's so much Covlight paper out there and there's this perception of security because it's a bond, but it's like, yeah, but, but for a, a payment default or a refinancing default, there's not really that much protection in a lot of this stuff. In, in many situations, even with that, <laughs> there's not that much protection, right? Many yeah. of the Covlight documents have very few restrictions against priming you know, a, you know, technically secured piece of paper, right? You can transfer assets into another trust that allows you to issue additional paper that supports the 
you know, salaries and wages that are being received by the management team as they zombify an asset. And we're seeing an extraordinary rise in zombie assets. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think generally what, what worries me about passive generally, and, and maybe this has just always been, but I just kind of worry that enough, like there's not enough people watching what they own. And uh, we'll see how it all turns out. I don't know. One, th- one thing that I do want to circle back to, because you're, you're one of the few people, uh, and I tend to be in this camp, but that's not hammering the inflation bug right now. And you referred to inflation as relatively low. And I think uh, certain people that listen may be screaming when they hear yeah. you say that. Yeah. How, do you, how are you thinking about inflation these days? So I, 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 the way I describe inflation, right, is inflation is effectively friction within an economy, right? And we did something really unique in 2020. We decided as a global economy, let's just take a long nap. Right. And we shut the entire thing down. People basically climbed into their beds. And now we're slowly waking back up. And when you wake up, even though you're quote unquote well rested, there's some stiffness and soreness in your joints, et cetera. That's what inflation is. Right. It also has a unique characteristic because of the way we chose to conduct our, our shutdowns. We shut down much of the supply and the capability to service things in the United States, which tends to be the service component of it, right? So if you're consuming in the United States, you tend to consume domestic services in the form of, I go to a restaurant or I go get a nose job or I go you know, um, send my kid to school and consume the services associated with education, right? We took away almost all of the spending in the services sector and we shifted it towards the goods sector, which is being shipped to us, again, through basically the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles. And it's the equivalent of the crazy rush that happens when you try to open up the the gates to the stadium for a concert, right? Like, it's not that the concert, the stadium is overfull. It's the process of filling the stadium is chaotic and feels highly frictioned and you're bumping against people, et cetera. Like, that's what the inflation experience that we're going through today is. The underlying demand is really not very high. We're not selling more cars, right? We're trying to build more houses. We're trying to build more multifamily units all of a sudden. But these are not extraordinary outcomes, right? I mean, in, in 2005, I believe we started 2.3 million. We, sold, we, we built 2.3 million new houses, right? I think this time around, it's like 1.6, something yeah. like that, right? Yeah, right around. You know, so... It's not actually that the economy is being stressed. It's that process of waking back up and that stiffness in the joints that's the friction that we call inflation. And we're already beginning to see fairly significant evidence that that inflation has done exactly what it's supposed to do, which is destroy purchasing power and lead to significantly reduced real demand for goods and services. Yeah. And and when that happens, we're going to find that the process of getting things up and going and running and moving smoothly, et cetera, we're going to be oversupplied and stuff. We will see downward pressure on the inflation rate. I also think that there's been a very substantive and I would argue almost willful misinterpretation of the term transitory, right? So people's broad interpretation of the term transitory 
feels to me like they're saying the increase in price level itself is going to be transitory. I don't think anyone has been arguing that. What I think people have broadly been arguing is just that the increase in the rate of price change towards that 6 7% level that we've seen recently, that that will be transitory. We may be at a permanently higher plateau in many types of prices, and that tends to be the case because of menu effects, sticky prices, wages, wage dynamics, et cetera. But the evidence for a continued acceleration of those prices is just extraordinarily weak. Huh. That, I, it makes sense to me because I was just looking at what we've been going through, coming through a decade of slow growth. You know, I think about it and I say, okay, well, how can you go through that, come out with, you know, more leverage in the system and fewer bodies? How can inflation stick? Uh, it, it's been something to me that has felt as though this is maybe, and I don't know how to handicap how long waking the system up will take, but look, two to three years may be really tough. Mm -hmm. After that, kind of back to the trend line, at least from a pressure standpoint, I think the deflationary uh, yeah. pressures I, I would are actually argue that the, the odds are very high that the pressure that has been experienced creates conditions under which there is lower aggregate demand than we would have otherwise had, right? So the cure for high prices is high prices. Why? Because it forces two things. One is a rejiggering of supply, right? So that's what the incentive for productivity improvements are. You know, can I figure out how to make more with less, right? Yeah. Can I use less aluminum in the manufacture of an air conditioner? Can I do... Uh, can I use less copper wiring in a refrigerator or in an electric car? The incentive to use less is dramatically higher when you have high prices, right? And so you set loose your engineering team and they figure out how to rejigger and redesign products so that you, you, you use significantly less of the raw material. What are you? We're seeing that very explicitly with, you know, the changing characteristics of fuel efficiency in the same way that we saw in 2005, 2006, right? It takes a long time for that to work through, but now we're beginning to see an explosion of electric vehicles, for example. What did we see in 2005, 2006? Just because I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, in 2005, 2006, when we had the dynamics of the hurricanes that impinged on uh, the refining operations in the Gulf of Mexico, okay. you saw gasoline prices spike to a level that changed the calculus of the auto industry dramatically. It actually created a momentary interruption in the dynamics mm. of America's love affair with SUVs and trucks and V8 engines, et cetera, right? Remember the Ford EcoBoost engines and, and the new you know, Toyota Priuses that came out and everything else, right? Those create a structurally different demand curve going forward once you introduce those innovations. Hmm. And of course, then we had low oil prices and suddenly people started saying, you know what I really want is 600 horsepower in my Mustang, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and the know, biggest I, truck I, possible. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you know and, and, and that's what we've seen, right? And so now we're coming out, you know, as, as my kids suddenly confront the idea of $5 gasoline and $6 gasoline here in California, they're like, Dad, thank God you got us an electric car, right? They used to complain that the thing could only go 100 miles. And now they're like, I'm just the luckiest kid in the world because I don't have to pay for gas like all my friends do. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? And they don't have um, to pay for much maintenance. Well, they're my kids, so they're not paying for me. <laughs> <It's period. laughs> well, I, I, I get to pay for that. Nice. But yes, you're right. 
But but that dynamic tends to be underappreciated. And I would suggest that a lot of the people that are super bullish on oil prices because of the supply dynamics, you know, I, I, I heard it described to me the other day as like, you know, world oil demand is like the world's most stable, you know, picture. And man, that's just not true. Right. Like, it, it, yes, it has gone up. But that has been a function of declining demand in, in developed markets, increasing demand in emerging markets. And now we're facing conditions where many emerging markets have seen their currencies depreciate. They've seen significantly negative terms of trade dynamic as they've lost tourism dollars or other development dollars associated with coronavirus in many situations because of onshoring that's happening in the United States or other areas around the world. Right. And, and you're creating conditions where you're seeing the same thing that happened with the oil price increases in 2000, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, right? The Arab Spring was really about rising energy prices, creating conditions of hopelessness. That's what Kazakhstan is about right now. That's what just happened in Uzbekistan, where they canceled the, the removal of subsidies, right? So we're, we're seeing all of this stuff play through in a fairly predictable and structural way that is likely to lead to structurally lower demand going forward. And that's before we begin to address the terrible demographic implications of coronavirus, which has exploded the cost of raising children, right? I mean, the, the minute you decide to have kids in today's world, you're taking on the potential reality that that kid can mean you can't go to work. Yeah. Right. And to a degree you've never seen before. That is a very tangible increase in the cost of having and raising children with incredibly predictable effects on fertility rates. Yeah. Do you, you think people actually are making decisions in that way? 100%. Wow. I'm surprised people are that rational. I can tell you, as somebody that has kids, quarantining with them for two weeks is not the most enjoyable experience, though I love my children. They, so you you're know, the one. No, no, I'm just, I've got I'm I've got three days in me of quarantine, and then I start yeah. to lose my mind. No, it's. It, I mean, honestly, like there was. If you remember the initial dynamics of two weeks to flatten the curve, was like, oh man, we're gonna have a baby boom. Yeah. Right. But when two weeks, like that's probably true. If we if we go back and we look at the dynamics, man, those first two weeks, I would guess that Americans had an increase in sex, et cetera. But there is no better birth control than having to spend six months locked up with your partner. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, I don't mean to laugh. It's true. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that aspect of it. I, I have thought of just how do you lose, you know, 700,000 people and come out with more aggregate demand. That's just tough for me to fathom. I, so that that is actually very straightforward, and I think that there's been some really interesting stuff around that, right? So, one, the population that we lost largely consumed, you know, and this sounds terrible, but 85 plus percent was grandma, right? Yeah, yeah. And the reality is, is that grandma consumes a lot in terms of medical services, and we've seen the demand for medical services fall. Right outside of the immediate treatment of coronavirus, demand for medical services is significantly lower than it was before. So you're seeing an impact of that there. But you're sending it to people that are spending more, right? Yeah. Well, and, and then the other thing that we saw is that there is a segment of the U.S. population that was fundamentally very stressed in terms of their desired acquisition of goods, in particular leisure goods, things like you know RVs and ski, you know. Uh, jet skis, et cetera, right? Like clearly there was unmet demand 
in terms of people had an inability to spend the money that they wanted to. And that shouldn't be a surprise. We changed the dynamics of financing. We increased the requirements in terms of credit quality and scores and limited a lot of people from accessing credit who historically would have been able to in 2004, 2005, because they were able to buy into a house that then gave them access to a home equity line of credit that then allowed them to go out and buy you know, various stuff that they wouldn't have been able to before. Suddenly we saw that, that there was significant untapped demand associated with that. And we gave money to the lower income segments of the US population disproportionately in a very progressive manner this time around. And it supported demand. Right. I mean, that's what that's telling you. The stress that people are telling you that they're feeling at the lower end is very clearly matched up with reduced purchasing power versus what they, they reduced purchasing, just to emphasize, versus what they would have historically wanted to see. So I, I'm not surprised by that dynamic, but I am surprised that people expect it's going to continue. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess that's, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is once we're through, once the snake swallows the pig or whatever on the other side of it, I, I do think that my brain was not connecting. If if the grandma then passes her money to a 40-year-old that's got kids or whatever, you could have more velocity of spend in the short term, I guess. But I don't know. I just I've, I find it hard to believe that we're in a perpetual state of inflation worry. But, you know, you can't turn the news on without it. Yeah, I, I you know. I think it's very easy for people to get extremely excited about the end of the world precisely because the end of the world is a once in a lifetime event, right? Yeah. And so like, you know, if all hell starts breaking loose, do you expect us to talk about box scores? No, let's talk about, you know, let's talk about things that really matter, man. Let's have intense, meaningful conversations. I, 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 people are exhausted of that now. And I, my guess is, is that, you know, when prices fade away, you're not going to hear the jubilation and the celebration of Powell and others on the Federal Reserve, you know, and saying, oh, my God, they were right. It was transitory after all. Right. It'll be, you know, they were saved by X, you know, can't possibly be that they did a reasonable job. Yeah. Along those lines, like what you, you had mentioned, um, that you had, uh, you thought the market was maybe too excited about rate normalization. I mean, how how would you uh, articulate? Uh, so this goes that? back to the dynamics of of the inelastic market, right? And so part of what transpires is when people begin getting excited about the idea of much higher interest rates, they start expressing that in the market, and the process of expressing that in the market actually causes those interest rates to rise, right? Because if I'm shorting bonds that's going to cause interest rates to go up. Um, it's particularly true if I'm using derivatives to short them because I've then introduced a profit margin associated with it in which a delta hedge from the market maker is actually driving the dynamics exactly as we've seen with gamma squeezes, et cetera, in the equity markets. I think a big chunk of what we've seen at the start of this year is effectively a reinitiation of many of the steepener type trades and bond shorts that people had tried to put on last year and started to get forced out of starting in basically February, March of 2021, right? So the disastrous year that people who bet on steepeners had, that came to an end and now they're shooting again, right? And that's then supported by the fact that the Federal Reserve feels backed into a corner 
this is all well and good to say inflation is transitory until a 6% or 7% print comes along. And then the politicians say, fix this problem now. We've got midterm elections coming. What the hell is wrong with you? Right. And I, I would point out that the, you know, the flattening of the curve, the inversion of the euro dollar surface in some areas is suggesting that the market is, is saying, yeah, the Fed's going to be forced to, you know, for political reasons, engage in tightening activity, even as the economy is weakening, both the fiscal impulse turning negative and the general exhaustion of purchasing power, you know, increased purchasing power associated with the higher prices. We saw that play out like in, in, at Christmas time, right? You know, we already know that it was a disappointing holiday season. Well, everybody thought it was going to be this off the wall, incredible, you know, picture. It just didn't happen. Hmm. Yeah. So why, why are people putting on, I mean, what, what is somebody that's putting on a steepener? What are they thinking? They're thinking that long-term rates are going to go up because what, uh, is, is it usually it's gotta be real growth, right? Or am I, I mean, I'm, this is, we're getting into language that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. So, so a steepener is a bet that long-term interest rates are going to rise more than short-term interest rates. Yeah. The, the curve gets steeper, right? right? Yeah. So the spread between a 10-year bond and a two-year bond widens, for example, or a 30-year bond and a 10-year or a 30-year and a five-year. Those tend to be the pretty typical implementations, 10s, 2s, 35, et cetera. They're, they're effectively betting on something like bond vigilantism, right? Mm. They're saying people who in the world would buy a 10-year bond under conditions of 6% inflation, right? Yeah. And I believe that the structurally higher inflation that is, here is, to is playing through is going to manifest itself in the Fed being forced to hike much more than they ultimately have indicated they're going to, right? Okay. That'll be perpetually behind the curve. Whether that's true or not, you know, we just we can't know yet is, I guess, the easiest the easiest way to put it. But it is very interesting that if you look at, you know, the, the implied volatility in the rate space, the bets on significantly higher interest rates and the Fed hiking six, seven times, hiking 50 basis points, et cetera, you know, the market is being forced to price the potential for that in, again, in the same way that the market in equities was forced to price the idea that, hey, maybe AMC will become the dominant entertainment vehicle of our time, right? You know, complete insanity. But if somebody buys a deep out of the money call option and you're a market maker, it's not your job to make that decision. Your job yeah. is to capture a spread. And yeah. that's how fixed income markets work as well. And, yeah. and by the way, just to be clear, like there's some really smart people, guys like Chris Rokos and others, who are betting on higher interest rates, and they could be right, right? I mean, it's possible I'm wrong. I, I don't think I am. And the most important thing that I would point out is that the system of financing, so we tend to operate in a world in which we still think banks are the source of financing, right? You know, that there's a loan that I take out at a fixed level of interest or potentially even a variable rate of interest. And that creates a deposit. And with that deposit, I then make purchases. And those purchases in turn create a circular dynamic, et cetera, right? 
Unfortunately, that's really not the way our financing system works anymore. Our financing system largely works on the basis of financing against collateral. Yeah. Right. So repo systems, et cetera. And if you have a repo system, the most important interest rate ceases to be the tenure, which is all about long-lived assets like mortgages. And instead, it becomes about the overnight rate or the three-month rate, which is all about how much does it cost me to borrow additional assets to gain levered exposure over very short periods of time. Hmm. And that's where we've seen no change yet, right? So, I mean, the overnight rate has not shifted. The three-month rate is still sitting there, I believe, at three or eight basis points, hmm. even as the two-year has risen dramatically over the past year or so. So if I'm a corporation looking to refinance its corporate debt, my cost of financing has gone up a lot. But if I'm a hedge fund looking to hold bonds or to hold equities or to buy structured products or to engage in the process of synthetics, security creation, that's cheap. Hmm. Interesting. We just don't know what's going to happen when that changes. Because this is, this is a novel situation. We saw the same thing in 2019 with the repo crisis. We just don't know what happens. Hmm. Have, have you ever, I mean, on a scale of one to 10, maybe this is a better way to, to frame this. How, uh, how do you think about the fragility of the world that we're living in right now? I mean, is this abnormally fragile? Is it pretty standard? Uh, it's got to be more than not fragile at all, it seems. Well, I mean, we are still very much at risk of an asteroid striking the Earth and everything <laughs> yeah. else, right? That hasn't changed meaningfully. The primary dynamic of leverage, right? The reason why leverage creates issues is not, you know, leverage by definition, all debt is somebody else's asset, right? So you don't hear anyone run around and say, oh my God, the problem is the world has just too many assets, right? But that is the core of the issue, right? What, what the real issue is associated with too much debt is that failure to deliver against that debt causes large-scale reallocation of resources. Debt has a change of control feature. If you stop making payments on that debt, I now get to take your asset in most situations. Yeah. Right? Or I can create a series of waterfall financing events that causes you to lose control of those assets. And it's really the societal stress associated with that change in ownership that everybody's talking about, right? And the inability to be prepared for it. So, you know, I think we're very fragile because that's a social construct. That's a social issue that we're dealing with. The last thing we want to hear is that Americans are being forced to sell their homes to Blackstone. Yeah. Right? But that's kind of the situation that we're in. If, if we encounter a significant slowdown, People will lose their houses and Vanguard, which doesn't, uh, not Vanguard, I'm sorry, Blackstone and, you know, it's various divisions that don't have to apply for a mortgage on any individual property can very quickly go out and buy up those assets in a manner that's not dissimilar to Crassus running roughshod over Rome in the, in the late Republican era. Yeah, I thought uh, I watched your, your interview with Peter Schiff. And I thought it was an interesting back and forth when he was advocating sort of sound money. And you said, like, who gets hurt by all this? Right. And um, I know his position is. Ultimately, on the back end, everybody would come out better. But I thought that you made a good point where you said, like, look, you and I are going to be fine. But the, the average person is the one that's going to get really, really hurt in the interim. 
Yeah, I mean, you you know, same thing applies to you, right? I mean, we have access to resources that most people don't. The single best financial of I mean, I understand this makes me sound like an asshole, right? So I just want to emphasize this is not me speaking as a gloating individual, but for many who are members of the relatively wealthy class, the single best event that transpired was the global financial crisis. Right. It created conditions under which I was able to purchase real estate quite cheaply. It created conditions under which you could buy many forms of assets at extraordinarily low valuations if you had access to cash and financing. And access to cash and financing was largely determined by your financial status. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, those types of events, that's what people are really talking about when they talk about the corruption of a monetary system that ceases to be about facilitating access to things like housing for individual home, households and increasingly becomes a collateral-based system, right, in which the access to financing is largely driven by your lack of need of that financing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And And the other point that you had is you said, like, ultimately, I'm going to need a good credit score to get the access to the financing. And we've already said in this hypothetical uh, that the person that needs the credit has is bankrupt or has given right. their house back, so they can't even get it, right? So right. the people that, it's one of those rich get richer scenarios. Correct. Now, you know, I, I guess if I wanted to argue the other side, I'd say, okay, well, is it the Fed's responsibility or the government's to prevent that? And I'd say probably it is actually. I, I think that's the great irony is, is that there is an element of yes, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it, like we all talk about greedy banksters and everything else, right? And, and I'm as guilty of it. And by the way, I just want to emphasize, I think they are as greedy and, and bad in many ways as everyone thinks, right? But, it, you know, you, it, it's a little bit like the scorpion and the frog story, right? You know, like yeah. you can't blame them for being scorpions. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And um and and it seems to me that while maybe uh I, I don't know, I like Austrian stuff in theory, but um we live in the system we live in, right? So you gotta play the, the cards as they lay, not as uh maybe theoretically it would be nice to have them lay. Well the, the so the issue with Austrianism is is one, it's predicated on a fundamentally false assumption, right? That money itself has to have an intrinsic value behind it. You know, that's where the MMT guys are and girls, but I just to emphasize, I'm not being sexist in that comment. You know, the proponents of MMT are correct in their description of the system. The problem is that it is not proscriptive in terms of here's how you should use that power, right? And so you get all sorts of ridiculous proposals, you know, and, and I'm good friends with Warren, uh, Warren Mosler. And, you know, we've had these very explicit conversations. It's funny if you do a Google, you know, YouTube search, you'll find me chiming in to a 2012 debate between Bob Murphy and Warren Mosler and, and, you know, highlighting exactly this point 10 years ago and saying, you know, look, this is how the system works. But that doesn't mean that Warren's proposals of job bank guarantee by the, the federal government is the right answer, right? But what we do have now is kind of the worst of all possible worlds where people look at it and say, you know, Manchin would be a perfect example of this. We can't afford to do X. Well, that's just silly, right? You can absolutely do almost anything you want 
right? But it, there are implications associated with it. And so if you spend the money badly, then you're going to have bad outcomes. Yeah. Right. I mean, rich people who choose to use heroin have bad outcomes, just like poor people who choose to use heroin. Right. It's not about the money per se. It's about the decisions of what you do with the money. Yeah. And I do think that it, there's a valid pushback that says, like, once government gets this big, you know, and, and there's corruption that gets involved. I mean, I, I get both sides of the I think I get both sides of this of the story. The, the, the solution to corruption is to address corruption, right? Yes. It's not to say, you know, yes, we're going to get rid of all credit cards because we don't want to have corruption. Right? Yeah, like, that's a good point. Uh, that's silly. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so how did uh, how did you go from a bottom up value guy to thinking all these big thoughts? You seem I mean, it's cool to watch you on Real Vision. You interview all kinds of people and you've, you've got just a wide range of knowledge. Well, so the dirty little secret is, you know, while I was running a small cap value fund and selecting on the basis of individual securities. It was ultimately still a macro framework where ultimately mm. my view continues to be that the vast majority of the return is associated with a sector or industry under most conditions relative to the individual security, right? I mean, if you enter into a commodity market, it is more important that you own oil companies than it is which oil company you own, Yeah, right? And so Everything is beta at some point, right? What's up? Everything is like beta at some point. Right? Yeah, I mean, there's, a, you know, that's, that's what things like the arbitrage pricing model, et cetera, assume, right? That you have exposures to particular factors. And that has unfortunately become more true in an environment of passive and ETFs, et cetera, where increasingly factor exposure is the much more important dynamic. What I loved about being on the, the small cap stock selection side, though, was the exposure to management, right? So I worked at a firm called Royce & Associates, which was after Fidelity, the second largest owner of small cap assets at the time. Today, they're both dwarfed by Vanguard. But we had hundreds, literally thousands of management teams that would come through and present their story in any given year. And so I had the opportunity to sit there and effectively build the database of knowledge that I would point out that somebody like Chuck Royce, the founder of Royce and Associates, just has in an encyclopedic form where he can look at a business and be like, okay, this business is X, right? It is, you know, a high quality business with a franchise. It is a rapidly growing market where they, they have optionality on becoming the dominant player. It is a management team that is really good at capital allocation. Like, you know, you, you start getting the experience base that you can very quickly put together a picture of what a business really is, which is much more important than the dynamics of, you know, like where are they headquartered and what was the compensation package for the CEO, right? Um, you know, the Warren Buffett aphorism that a brilliant management team, meaning a bad business, the, the reputation of the business survives, right, is 100% correct. You know, that's much less important than the ability to very quickly figure out, is this a good business, a bad business? What are the actual key performance indicators, et cetera, right? I miss that a lot. I really mm -hmm. miss that. But unfortunately, I think it's increasingly irrelevant, right? Mm -hmm. So as long as the key determinant of the next marginal buyer becomes, did uh, the Center for the Research on Security Prices included in an index, or what are the mechanisms by which it gets included in an index and how popularly 
distributed is that index, as long as that remains the key determinant, you know, I'm not sure how much value there is in sitting and meeting with management teams. That's interesting. I know, um, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to say the name because I think he said it publicly, but it's it, it goes along with one of my friends uh, is looking for businesses that appear cheap and could get included in an index, right? Because it's like, that's uh, that can become the holy grail. It's a great story. I mean, that, so you we talked early on that you and I both know Dan McMurtry. Yeah. Who you've seen me speak with on Real Vision. And Dan is one of the first active, you know, and, and I love watching this because it is the classic markets are complex adaptive systems, right? Dan is one of the young portfolio managers that's out there that has figured out that 75 plus percent of the game is understanding who owns something. My good friend, yeah. Mike Taylor, who runs the Simplify uh, Healthcare Fund, came to the same realization in 2014, 2015. He's like, yeah, yeah, it definitely matters. Is it a good healthcare company? But what I care much more about is, is it a good management team running a fund that happens to own that? Because if it's not, they're going to be a forced seller at some point, and I can take advantage of that. Right. And I would broadly suggest that, like, that is the simplest definition of an active manager today is a loser who is going to get fired. Right. It took longer for Kathy Woods to figure this out than, you know, and for us to identify these dynamics with Kathy Woods. But the simple reality is the minute the money starts leaving, particularly if you have reached scale, you become a forced seller of your best ideas, causing them to become among the worst ideas in the market. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this it's uh, Janice all over again, right? Potentially, Janice would be a perfect example of that. Correct. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I, I I saw earlier in the year, let's call it June, I guess last year, but like a lot of my stocks were trading just the same day after day, and it didn't even they weren't even related businesses, and I was like, okay, this is just one factor off, and then. Now you're seeing a lot of these growth companies come down and they come down in tandem. Yep. And I I um I I am warming up to the idea that factor exposure is way more important than I used to appreciate. I always kind of appreciated it, but seeing seeing what happened from like call it June to October and then October to now has just been two such like clear examples of rotation that it's impossible for me to ignore. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that's part of the reason why you hear people talking about my theories, et cetera, right? Because it's becoming increasingly impossible to ignore these dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's what yeah. made me ping you. I was like, Mike, I think I'm finally ready to talk to you about this. <laughs> like, I think I actually get it now. It, it's, it, it, it is interesting because it is one of these weird things where, it, you know, people tend to think that when I'm saying this, that I'm showing disrespect for active managers, right? Like, I actually think the process of capital allocation, the, the detailed work that is done to try to understand a business, to try to understand the incentive structure of a management team, to understand how the underlying fundamentals of the business are behaving, like that's super admirable. That's what we should be doing. That's the way I want the market to get to, but it is not the reality of the world that we inhabit today. Yeah. So I'm going to give you one more chance to plug uh, how Simplify solves this or helps so solve it for some people 
I know you have a number of solutions, but like, what is, what are the problems that you're trying to attack through the business and how has it been to start it up? Uh, well, so it's been a phenomenal experience. And as I said, you know, we've, we've been very fortunate to have had our products well received. And I think people genuinely understand that what we're trying to do is address this fundamental issue of market timing in the classic sense of, hey, everything's too expensive, therefore I should sit on the sidelines, doesn't work in an environment of passive flows. And so the, the single best thing that you can do, and again, this is you know my analysis, the work that we've done supports this, the academic community is increasingly coming on board, et cetera, but the single best thing that I can do is provide people with tools that allow them to continue to participate in the market while cutting off elements of that left tail exposure that could be catastrophic, right? And we can do that in a variety of ways. If the inelastic market hypothesis is correct and the efficient market hypothesis is incorrect, and I'm very confident that that is the case, but I just wanna emphasize that's my work and a growing body of academic work that suggests it's true, it means that there are exploitable opportunities in nonlinear components of the market, things like options. And so our primary vehicles are largely around giving base index type exposures to the S&P 500 or to the Russell 2000 or to international stocks we've started to introduce, to healthcare stocks, I mentioned Mike Taylor, and create option overlays that we believe can add significant value to those underlying exposures, right? That's really hard for, in particular, the registered investment advisor space to do, right? They all want to keep their clients invested. They all want to provide them with less risk to the downside in particular, because if you've hired an RAA, you tend to have assets that you want to protect. But the, the challenge is, is that if you adopt the traditional approaches and say, well, we're just going to go long short, we're going to remove the market exposure, or we're going to hold more bonds and less equities, what you're actually signing yourself up for is to get fired, right? And your clients are going to fire you. And it's one of the hardest parts of what's going on in the market is, is that it feels like you know, the, the Christian expression is the meek shall inherit the earth, right? Well, what we've actually seen is the insane shall inherit the earth, right? Like if you're, <laughs> if, you're, if you're willing to do what everybody else is doing, just slightly nuttier, it's paid off in spades. Huh. I like it. I, I think that's a good way that the insane shall inherit the earth is a great way to end this one. I appreciate your time. And uh, thank you very much, the, Michael Green. The title of the podcast, yeah. I'll tell you, well, I, I give you something better than that, but people can find you everywhere. Real vision, but you, I mean, the, you're, the content you have helped create on YouTube, I am very thankful for and uh, highly endorse what you do. And I, I have mad respect for you as an interviewer, man. It's very cool to watch. So thank you very thank much. You. I really appreciate that. And if people want to check out more on our products, the, our website is www.simplify.us. If you have a registered investment advisor, direct them to that website. If you are a registered investment advisor, feel free to reach out and you can always follow me or many of my colleagues at Simplify on Twitter. Uh, we tend to be found there, Real Vision, YouTube, et cetera. So, Bill, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the opportunity to chat with you.